Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga in all of its deepest dimensions. May these words nourish you. May you find in the garden of spirituality a flower whose fragrances suit you. Yes, there we go. Today we are going to be discussing the sacred feminine, the principle of female divinity, and particularly with regards to Shakta Tantra. Last week, we talked about the various gods and goddesses and the form of using symbols and metaphors and personification, that is, deities, in order to access certain psychic forces that would be too beneath the surface and too behind the scenes to access without the aid of some sort of device, like a deity. And last week, we managed to discuss a few of those deities, particularly Shiva and Durga, and a few of those deities. And I was thinking, okay, today, we'll continue to talk about the deities, Lakshmi and Saraswati and all the other female goddesses. But I thought maybe I could step back and zoom out a little bit and investigate the principle of the goddess in Indian spirituality. And this is an interesting dimension because Indian spirituality offers a slightly different interpretation of the male-female interaction than the more modern permutations of those terms. So that's what we'll do. We'll explore that together. As always, let's stay inside this meditative space that we've cultivated together. Please stop me at any point if you have a question or an interjection. As far as possible, we'll We'll stay in this space and test everything that is said against the backdrop of our own personal experience. Remembering that something in yoga philosophy is only true insofar as it checks out in our own experience. Therefore, it's only true if it's true for you. So let's debate. I invite questions and disagreements. Stop me anywhere. Okay, let's start. I wanted to start today's discussion with the Ardha Narishvara, or the Ardha Narishvara. And for some of you who have seen the Instagram photo that I posted today, inviting you to today's conversation, that was the image I I wanted to draw attention to. In about the first century, in a province called Kushan, near Kashmir, northern India, there appeared these images of half-man, half-woman, and they were joined together. So the interesting thing is, suddenly, there were these statues where split down the middle, one half of the statue was male, and the other half of the statue was female, so to speak. Welcome, Casey. Good to have you. Nice to see you here. So... The interesting thing is that, you know, there would be one breast and then strong masculine features and then jewelry on the other side, denoting feminine aspects. And this started to show up in various sculptures around what we call first century Gupta period India. By the third century Gupta period, generally regarded between the third and fifth centuries, uh, we saw flourishing of this kind of iconography. So suddenly there were temples dedicated to this mysterious being that was half man, half woman. You started to see more paintings. The woman often had a tiger or a lion 
and she was dressed in a sari and she had her traditional Hindu adornments. The male looked like Shiva with his leopard skin, um, what do you call it, uh, loincloth and his uh, trident and he had a cow. So often you would see this tiger and this cow split down the middle. This being is called Ardha Narishvara or Ardha Narishvar, and it translates to the Lord who is half woman. And it's a beautiful image because it implies that at the highest level of spirituality, all duality collapses. So all concepts of night and day, joy and sorrow, um, positive and negative, male and female, all collapse into a unitary experience of oneness. It's not oneness before duality. It's oneness after duality. So there's something interesting about having two and making one. So that's some of the sacred geometry there. It's very esoteric, but there's more value in bringing two things together in one than to just have one thing. And that's why these images emphasize contrast, duality. But beyond that, the coming together and dissolving of duality into a unity. So at this juncture, I want to express that Indian spirituality holds the highest level of that spirituality to be, be beyond all concepts of male and female, masculine and feminine. This idea of Ardha Narishvar is not exclusive to India. It appears in the form of Greek myths, like I'm sure you've heard this one at the very beginning of time. Uh, humans were four-armed, four-legged beings. And Zeus, jealous of their happiness, split them in the middle. And now you are doomed to wander the desolate waste of this earth, looking for your other half. And your soulmate is the two arms, two legs, and head that was severed from you in the very beginning. In terms of quantum mechanics, you can kind of think of this as quantum entanglement. In the beginning, there was the god atom, and after the Big Bang, you get bajillions of atoms. But they were all part of the same atom. So in modern quantum mechanics, if you take a particle and you split it and you were to take it apart, you know, for great distances, whatever you do to one half of that particle, the same thing will happen to the other half. It's a very mysterious phenomena in quantum mechanics and it's called entanglement. What a beautiful poetic word. The two particles, the two halves of the particles are quantum entangled. Meaning, if you change the charge of one, the other changes too. If you change the direction of the spin of one, the other changes too. It's a very interesting idea. So you get that in Greece. You also get it in the 15th century um, when alchemical symbolism started to spread through Europe. So in Western occultis occultism, you see the image known as the anima mundi, meaning the soul of the world, the spirit of nature. And the anima mundi was often depicted as half man, half woman. So you can see how Greek culture and European alchemical occult culture is just peppered with these references of the hermaphroditic entity or being, the being that was both man, both woman co-joined. So I'm going to compare now. In the Western conception, the masculine tends to represent the logical thinking side of our human experience and the 
feminine nature was expressed as the sensual, symbolic, dreamlike, and subconscious aspect of human nature. By the time we get closer to the 20th century, around the late 19th century, you had writers like Virginia Woolf. You know, she wrote A Room, room of One's Own. She said for women to, to be successful, they need money and a room of one's own. Anyway, in that book, A Room of One's Own, she ends with the thesis that every woman is both a woman and a man. And every man is both a man and a woman. In that, um, there is a part of their psyche that they aren't allowed to express. And in her time, it was a Victorian society, very proper, a lot of pomp. And so she was upset that the masculine in her was being repressed, that she had to be ladylike when all she wanted to do was read books at Oxbridge, like the boys did, you know? And she ends that book by saying, in every man there is a woman. And his tragedy is that he's not able to access that part of himself. And in every woman there is a man, and her tragedy is that she is socially barred from going to that dimension of herself. This idea, of course, probably comes from Freud and Jung starting to, you know, um, advocate unconscious or subconscious mind theory. Jung phrases it as such. In each person, there is an anima or an animus. So if you're a woman, you have an animus, a male side that's like repressed. If you are a man, you have the anima, uh, sorry, yeah, anima, the female side. So you get the idea that we're not really talking about gender here or sex. We're talking about some kind of psychic or spiritual principle that is loosely related to gender and sex, and perhaps not at all. That's the interesting thing. So for today's discussion, we use words like masculine and feminine, and they are loaded terms, but by using those terms, we perhaps don't ever intend to denote sex or gender. That's the interesting thing, that we might as well find different names for these two psychic or spiritual principles that seem to occur in our experience of life. So in that, with that being said, the concept of um, gender politics or gender amorphousness isn't unique to our day and age. It's one that the threads of which have been pulled throughout history. Um, there is a character, her name is Salome, and she was the famous love of Nietzsche's life. Nietzsche, the great philosopher. And some people say Nietzsche was so angry and bitter because he just couldn't win Salome's heart. She was a little too fierce for him and too independent, and she wouldn't marry him. Apparently, he asked her, and she said no, and he was very sad. Um, oh, it's funny, because, uh, you know, Grace, Grace Hawkins just joined this discussion, and Grace is a writer, incredible writer, and she's the closest thing I know to a modern-day Salome. We're talking about Nietzsche's gal. So anyway, Nietzsche was close friends with the poet Rilke, the German poet Rilke, and supposedly the three of them would hang out, and Salome would famously spurn Nietzsche, and she fell in love with Rilke, and they had a I mean, and now the world has these beautiful philosophy books that <laughs> had his sexual urges not been stifled and pushed deep down into his root chakra. Some people suggest that Nietzsche would be nothing without Salome. Most of those ideas were hers, if not inspired by what she did to him psychologically. <laughs> so, you know, and later she, she gets, she, you know, shacks up with Jung. So she really got around. She was very in the intellectual circles of the 90s. Wow. 
Yeah. The interesting thing about Salome, though, is a lot of people thought, like, she was the world's first public, quote-unquote, butch. Like, people often said she was very unladylike. Like, she hung out with exclusively men, intellectuals. She liked to debate and argue. She liked to read and do, back then, what was considered masculine activities, like um, philosophize, you know, when she should have been writing poetry or something. I don't know. So, she was seen as kind of a manly woman. At the same time, you have characters like Oscar Wilde, who are seen as kind of like a womanly man. You get this idea of the dandy, where male figures start to wear eyeliner and dress a little bit more flamboyantly. So even then, in 20th century, 19th century Victorian England, you're having these these political kind of expansions of gender roles and what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. Certain generalizations are rising up to the surface, though. And the generalizations in the West seem to imply at, you know, the most general, the West, especially the Western spirituality, sees the masculine as the thinking, logical, extroverted mind. It's the more outwardly aspect of human life. Whereas the feminine is seen as the sensual, the um, bodily, the emotional, the physical and more hidden, secretive aspects of self. And you can study this in the Rider Waite tarot where you have the magician standing with the very phallic looking wand and he's all action and he's standing up and he's ready to do something. Very extroverted figure. And his polar opposite is the high priestess. She's sitting, balanced between two opposites. She's hiding um, a, a scroll of secret information under her cloak and at her feet is the moon. In the Rider Waite, the magician is yellow and orange and red, and she is blue and purple. So you're seeing lunar and solar aspects here. Now, it's argued in the history of Western spirituality that in the beginning, the female goddess had dominance in most pantheons, especially in the Babylonian, Mesopotamian pantheons. The female goddess was always revered above male goddesses. A lot of these cultures didn't even have male goddesses. They worshipped a female goddess because she symbolized to them the womb, the mystery of life and death, and nature. She often had two forms. One was the benevolent springtime form, where nature was friendly and kind to you, loving. You know, it was springtime or summer. Then she had a darker side, her winter or autumnal aspect in which things were cold and you didn't know whether or not you would live to see tomorrow. So she became someone who was loved and feared, but above all, awed. Men wrote the fount of their power in the name of the female deity. They were always surrendering to the divine feminine. And then something happened. Actually, Carl Jaspers, the anthropologist, calls this singularity the advent of the axial age. And something happens in human history. In Carl Jasper's axial age, which happens around um, 3,800 BCE, and later he says 300 um, BCE, people start to have private property. So nomadic cultures start to become more and more city-like, cities start to become bigger and bigger, and the idea of property becomes a little more enmeshed. Once there's private property, soon math 
appears, math to deal with grain and how to divide that property. Once you get this level of abstraction that only a big populous city necessitates, suddenly you see a coincidental decline of female deities and in their place the enshrinement of male deities. Suddenly in Babylonian literature, you get motifs of powerful, like, um, Chad, bro, jock-type deities smiting women like um, Tiamat, the great serpent, who was a goddess who was um, who created all of nature and, and she resides peacefully in the universe. And then her children start to make noise and her husband say, uh, says, I'm trying to sleep. Um, can you please kill your children? They're making too much noise. They're so noisy. And he sends a flood to destroy them. So this is the Babylonian uh, flood myth, which later becomes important in Christianity. But she like protects her children, you know, and she's seen as the mother. Eventually, though, a powerful God destroys her, you know, kills her. You see this with Zeus killing the serpent as well, which Hera summoned. This can be said to be the symbolic dominance of the male uh, psychological orientation, which is logic, um, uh, seeing things as a means to an end, division, categories, labeling, taking precedence over the more um, feminine aspect, which didn't have those qualities. That's the Western conception of the male-female schism. The man represents the thinking mind, the woman represents the emotion. The man represents the extroverted solar aspect, the woman represents the passive lunar aspect. So mark this, it's the exact opposite in Indian spirituality. I don't want to say the exact opposite because it often gets mixed up from tradition to tradition. But generally speaking, especially with regard to Tantra, which happens around 900 AD, the feminine aspect is the energetic, solar, outward, active part of nature. And the masculine aspect is the passive, still, quiet, and inert aspect of nature. And that's incredibly beautiful. Now, the interesting thing about the Ardha Narishvar, and that's, that's why I wanted to start with the Ardha Narishvar. Yeah, yin and yang is, yin and yang is very interesting too, because I'll tell you how in yin and yang, um, people get it wrong in the West, because in the West, and I want to make this point in the West, for some reason, a schism has formed between these two minds. You know, I, I, except for the very highest in any field, like take a quote-unquote male-dominated field like engineering or uh, logic or something like that, at the very top of that field, it's pure art and, uh, you know, poetry. If you take the more, let's say, stereotypical feminine field like painting and art and fine art, at the highest level of that, is a very masculine scientific element where you're very formal and structured. So all science um, meets art and all art meets science at its highest points. So if you look at the yin and yang symbol, it is not a circle with a line through it. It's the two things coming into each other. The true meaning of the yin and yang symbol in Taoism is in yang is yin. In yin is yang. So it's not that yin and yang are dualistic. 
they are always tugging against one another. In fact, I took a yin yoga workshop over the weekend and the instructor, beautiful fellow David Kim, was talking about which is more yin to you, the heart or the sternum? Which sounds more yin? And let's just do a, like a survey just for fun. Raise your hand if you think the heart is more yin than the sternum. Okay, cool. That was my answer too. And presumably everyone else says sternum. Austin says sternum. Sternum is more yin. Okay, now here's the difficulty, right? Both are true in a different sense. So the heart is yin in that it's hidden. It's interior. It's associated to emotions and private life. But it's yang in the sense that it's dynamic and pumping and active and energetic. And it's a muscle. You know, it's moving. It's one of the most powerful muscles in the body. Now, the sternum, you could say, is yang because it's outside the body. It's external. It's extroverted. It's here, you know. But at the same time, it's made of bone. It's dense, it's still, it's inert. You can lift and drop your sternum, but the sternum stays the same, you know. So to say one thing is yin and the other is yang completely misses the point. But in Western spirituality, sometimes that happens. You know, there is a kind of neat category, which again is the fallacy of drawing boundaries here and there and, you know, uh, unweaving the rainbow, they call it. Pluck all the petals out of the flower to understand the mystery of nature kind of approach with reduction of science in the West. So that's why yin and yang are sometimes misunderstood. Um, to see like this world of dualism, like one thing is yin, one thing is yang. But the Taoist philosophers like Lao Tzu always talked about a tug of war between the two things and there is a middle way. There is a point where the two of them meet. That's what we call walking the razor's edge. The Taoist is able to stay in the Tao, which is that conscious principle that emanates out the whole universe. The Tao De Ching, which is the name of the book, has three words. Ching means book, but Tao De, the Tao means that conscious principle, which we're going to talk about a little bit in today's lecture. The De, the de means a flowing forth. You know, so some could say the Tao is yang and the de is yin. That would make sense for the Indian spiritual context, which we'll come to now. So in the Indian spiritual context, like we established, the male is considered the inert and passive and the female is considered the active and dynamic. But to draw this neat line between the two misses the point because in one exists the other. Earlier in today's meditation, when we were sitting, you saw the paradox of stillness. The more still you became, the more you noticed movement in your body. You noticed the saliva. You noticed the blood flowing. And if you really sit there, you'll notice your hair growing. You know, there's all these things that are moving. Your body vibrates. And for those of you, you know, standing in Tadasan, in mountain pose, in your yoga class, you're standing there, you notice there's a rocking. The body kind of wavers a little bit. If you look at solid matter, each atom, it's vibrating. You know, so there's intense movement. But some of you have done Ashtanga classes and you've been flowing through poses. One breath, one movement. You know, you're going through all sorts of vinyasa and you're, you're flowing. And suddenly, in your movement, there is intense stillness. 
You know, we have dancers in the room and that wonderful feeling of body in motion, but being still, watcher almost, this, this wonderful experience of stillness in motion and motion in stillness. So with that in mind, that's what the Arda Narishvar is pointing at. The two come together. You cannot have one without the other. So now we're going to get into the meat of it. What is the divine feminine in Indian spirituality? You cannot answer that question without a little exposition of Indian metaphysics. And there are different schools of thought, but in most schools of thought, um, there is a conscious principle that emanates out the universe. I I don't want to say it. Emanate is a very loaded word. That's only true for us tantrikas. For the Sankhya people, it's not emanate. They're two and they're separate. Um, But let's just talk in terms of tantra now. Just want to specify that this is a tantric version, not true of all Indian spirituality. But most Indian spirituality can agree that there is a conscious principle. In yoga or Sankhya, they call it purusha, meaning spirit. In um, Vedanta, they call it Atman or Brahman, meaning Adam of pure being, bliss, consciousness, the conscious principle upon which the universe hangs. In, you know, the West, we call it God. Another name for it is Shiva Shakti. That's the tantric name for it. And there are two names. One is Hridaya, which means the heart of the universe, you know. The other one is Shiva Shakti, often co-joined. And that's what we call this conscious principle. Here's another name for it, the Tao. The exact same thing. It's this one principle that is at the heart of all existence. This principle is considered to be immaterial. So it's not a thing, nor is it energy. This is an important point. A lot of people think in Hinduism, it's all energy, brah. God is pure energy. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. It isn't even energy. Energy is material. You know, we'll talk about that in a bit. But this is not energy. It's not matter. It's not made of anything because it is a verb, not a noun. If that makes sense. Energy is a noun. Uh, Matter is a noun. Stuff is a noun. God has become tragically a noun. God is this fellow in the sky with a beard keeping the naughty or nice list that makes you feel guilty for being born. Who could have thought it would be born in sin, you know, and he's very angry. So this one is a noun, which, which misses the point because in Indian spirituality, it's a verb and that verb is awareness. So this is the principle of awareness that in the Upanishads, the ancient Indian Gnostic philosophy is called that which makes seeing possible, but which itself cannot be seen. So that which cannot be cut, cannot be wet, cannot be burnt, cannot be touched, cannot be heard, cannot be seen, but that by which all seeing is made possible. So the joke of it is like looking for your own face. You can see it in the mirror, but you'll never really be able to see your own face. Your world ends up here, you know. You can see it in cameras, you can see it on the Zoom screen, you can see it on mirrors, but you'll never really know what your face looks like. You know, that's what it is. God is you, God is the witness. That being is completely inert. Awareness is passive, it's still, it's motionless, and it's just sufficient in of itself. There's no motion There's no activity because for this self or this Atman or this Tao, 
There is nowhere to go. There is nothing to be. There is nothing to do. It's pure blissful awareness. Some of you have felt it um, in particularly sublime acid trips. You're sitting there and you don't want to move. You're just sitting and you're in bliss. And you don't know where you are, you don't know who you are, you're just happy to sit and be in that bliss. Tiny glimpse, tiny taste of the bliss of this being. This is known as the masculine principle often. So this is seen as Shiva. Shiva, his name means blessing, um, but a more esoteric description of the name Shiva is actually void or nothing. You know, it's very powerful. Eden asks, so where does the psychic sight come into that? Like if the Tao is the unseen, then what is the seen unseen that we see with our third eye? Okay, yeah, totally. All that is nature. So think of it this way. If you look at a table, right, you'll just see a table. It'll just be a table for you. Now, what if I took you to 10 years of carpentry school? And every day you studied the grain of the wood. You worked with wood every day. And then I put you in front of that table. What will you see? Where before you might have said table, now you can say mahogany 6.4 with a teak finish on the corner. You know, you're seeing more detail in that piece of wood, right? It's not like there are different tables. The table is the same table. It's just that Back then, oh, Lyric's father has come to join us. Welcome, welcome. Good to see you, my friend. So the old table was still a table. But now that you've been to carpentry school, the table looks different from you. Give someone training and you change what they see in the world. So this Eden is what we mean by third eye. Um, it's kind of a misleading term because it's not like you open the third eye. The Agnya Chakra doesn't open. In fact, most of us cannot, in Indian spirituality, the idea is that we cannot even go past our third chakra. We see the world entirely in terms of security, sex, and power. Once we start meditating, we learn to withdraw energy from those three domains of life, and then we push energy up the spine through certain exercises and training, and then we start to access the higher chakras or the heart, and then we feel compassion. We access the throat and we understand truth, and then we see a different table. So it's not like there's a new table. The unseen is always the seen. It's just you haven't seen it yet without the training. Now, this is categorically different. So we're talking Indian metaphysics here. We haven't yet introduced the human element. This is the pure principle of witnessing. So this masculine Tao sees all. Everything that can be seen is seen by this Tao. Did that quite do it, Eden? The way you just explained that clicked something in my mind and like... I just love the way you said that a lot for me. I don't know. That just hit different. Thank you. I'm happy. I like that phrase. It hit different. <laughs> I love it. Thank you for whatever being presented us with that today. Wherever they were. So um, this principle then, this Tao, this Atman, this witness is often the male aspect. It's the Shiva. Now let's look at what we talked about last week. The depiction of Shiva. Do you remember we said Shiva just sits He's perfectly self-sufficient. He's just sitting in bliss at the top of the mountain. The mountain because he's removed from the world. He's outside of nature. So you have this idea now of a transcendental being. This is the problem. Um, we talked a couple of classes ago in platonic dualism. 
I don't know if you remember, but the world of form, Plato's ideals, and then this world. And later that becomes the Christian dualism, where you have, you know, God, who is outside of nature, and then you have the Holy Ghost, which is nature. So how do you connect them? Well, you have the sun, and the sun is God in the world, you know. So that trinity exists here too. You have this principle, it's the Brahman or the one conscious principle that is the eternal witness, perfectly still, perfectly silent, kind of inert, you know, kind of liptic. So here you are. This is the male, the de definition of the male in Hindu spirituality, you know, still and inert. Now, here's the interesting thing. This still and inert principle has a counterpart. Its counterpart is known as nature, form, the universe, or all the seen things. Now, in yoga philosophy or in Sankhya, this is called Prakriti. So uh, nature has that name, Prakriti, and spirit has the name Purusha. Unfortunately, in a lot of Sankhya philosophy, they cannot tell you how the two are connected. It's kind of like Descartes' problem. He couldn't tell you how the mind and body were related. You know, and Spinoza shows up and he says, no, 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 they're the same thing looked at from different angles. It's a really beautiful idea. I'll ask this question and maybe it will help the duality. Who is a better athlete, Stephen Hawking or Usain Bolt? So raise your hand if you think Stephen Hawking is the better athlete. Interesting. Now we are victims of duality. Because we seem to think there are two dimensions here. One is thinking and one is being in the body. Usain Bolt, he's running. He's using his body, so he's in the body. So we think he's the better athlete because what it means to be an athlete is to be physically powerful. Now, if I asked who's the better intellect, uh, I don't know, but you might say Stephen Hawking because, you know, whatever. That's what he does, right? He's an intellect. And now you've committed the error in thinking there's the domain of the intellect and the domain of the body. What if we said this? When it comes to athleticism, Stephen Hawking is using his brain physically with as much power as Usain Bolt is using his body physically. Do you see? You can talk of Stephen Hawking's in purely physical terms. Similarly, you can talk of Usain Bolt in purely mental terms. You could say he's a great intellect because he knows how to organize his body or think his way through many mental obstacles. So that's what Spinoza uh, said about Descartes' duality. Look, it's just one thing. You can speak of it in terms of a body or you can speak of it in terms of a mind. It's an interchangeable language. They're pointing to the same thing. Kind of what Christianity does too when they introduce the sun and that combines them. Too. So in Sankhya philosophy, you have Purusha, that's the male, and Prakriti, which is the female. In Tantra, though, you start to see the art around this. So in Tantra, the male, the conscious principle, emanates out the female who is exuberant, dynamic, powerful, fierce, ecstatic. You know, that's the beautiful thing about the Tantric female goddess energy. It is often depicted as a very fierce and powerful energy. So I don't know if you've seen a picture of Shiva and Kali. It's a very interesting, if you see Kali, often, and you know, um, you can call to mind the image of Kali, or you could maybe Google it after this conversation, but Kali, her hair is made of fire, right? So there's that energy again. She's often standing with her arms aloft, 
Where Shiva usually sits with his arms, hands in his lap or knees, eyes closed, Kali's eyes are open, her hands are aloft. In one hand, she's holding a, a head dripping with blood. In the other, she has a like a sickle, you know, the sickle of time. Her name, Kali, comes from the Sanskrit Kala, which means time. And she's got another hand holding a trident, another one holding a bowl to catch the dripping blood from the guy's head. Anyway, she's wilding, you know, she's partying. Her mouth is open and her tongue is sticking out. My next record is going to be called Kali Loves Metal. Because obviously she does, necklace of skulls. Now, she's dancing, yes, Kali is dancing. Underneath her is... Shiva lying down. He's in savasana, shavasana, corpse pose. You know, Shiva is lying there in corpse pose. So the idea here is you have an inert conscious principle. That's Shiva lying down. Out of that inert, inert conscious principle emerges an active, dynamic, energetic form. That is the universe. Kali or Kala meaning time. The world of time to mean this dimension of embodiment. So you do have an echo of this Western idea of the female embodied sensual being because there is an embodiment, but it's the embodiment of everything, meaning every thought. Can you dig that? Every thought that exists in your head is a thing in the set of the universe, the universe being a sample set of all things that exist. Things being your thoughts, things being physical things, things being energetic things. All energy, all mentality, all time-based things is this divine female being. So they say Shiva cannot be known. Shakti can be known. Shakti means power. That's what the word means. It means power. Shakti is seen as inseparable from Shiva. And that's why the word is often Shiva Shakti. So a metaphor that they like to use in Indian spirituality is heat and fire. You know, Shiva is the fire. And not to be confused, I know I just said the female is very fiery and powerful. Sure. Let's just put that aside. This metaphor says Shiva is the fire. Shakti is the heat. So where you have one, you must have the other. You cannot separate them. You can't have heat without the fire, fire without the heat. Now we can. There's all sorts of radiators and electric heat. But bear with me. It's Vedic era India, 3800 BCE. We've only got the ghee lamp, people. Fire, Shiva, inert. Heat emanates out. So the activity of God is Shakti. Shakti meaning power. It's what God does. Shiva is what God is. So you can make it even verbs now. The male is isness. The female is doesness. Does that make sense? Doing and being. So activity, you know, is, is the divine feminine. So let's look at her depictions throughout Indian history or Indian spiritual history. Now she's called Shakti, meaning pure power. That Shakti has various forms or various ways of access. So in Tantra, female deities are predominant. Like Tantra loves female deities. In fact, this image of Durga that you can see behind me, actually bring it over to the screen, is a very Tantric image because she has a lot of weapons. And you'll remember that lion or tiger we were talking about earlier in the Ardha Narishvara. Here's a lion again. Sometimes she has a tiger. But she is a powerful and fierce being. 
And that's the tantric definition of the woman. Fierce, powerful, not to be fucked with, very dangerous, um, has benevolence and sweetness, but also ferocity. So Durga is a beautiful combination of the two. You can kind of call her an intersection of Kali and Lakshmi, you know. So let's think about Kali, yes. Kali is, um, you know, I kind of pity missionaries um, in India when they were first arriving in India. You can imagine the horror that these poor Christians must have felt when they were faced with an image like Kali. You know, I don't blame them. They're like, oh my God, these are demon worshippers. <laughs> it's easy to think that when you miss um, that Kali doesn't actually exist in the sense that there is no being like that. She's a metaphor. She's a symbol for something. And what does she symbolize? She symbolized time, right? All things. And what is the what is intrinsic in time? It's going to kick your ass. That's what, it, what, what you cannot escape with the time. Everything you love will decay. Your body will decay. Your mind will fall into disrepair. Um, things die. Things decay. And therein lies suffering. Sickness, loss, grief, death, um, it's all in time. But if we are to become initiated, sometimes that suffering is the surest way to spirituality, as exemplified by Jesus on the cross. And, you know, Jesus in the Western depiction didn't die like happily and peacefully. You know, there he is on the cross and he's screaming in Hebrew, Lama, 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 Sabachthani. You know, Father, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? He's freaking out on the cross. He's in suffering. He's in pain. And through that, he is glorified. Osiris in the Egyptian myth is dismembered into many little parts and fed to crocodiles and thrown across Egypt. There's always some kind of tearing apart. When Dionysus takes form, women mad with love tear him apart. You know, yeah, perhaps, perhaps he was quoting the Psalms. Um, but in all these instances, what I want to point at is what in Christianity is called the way of the cross. So Kali is often a powerful female deity you invoke when you want to find meaning in suffering or when you really want to go deep in your spiritual practice. Spiritual practice is by nature um, uncomfortable. The word for it is tapas. In fact, before the word yoga was used, the word for yoga was tapasya or tapas, meaning heat, fire, or glowing. The more you put the gold in the furnace, the purer the gold becomes. The idea of stepping into the crucible and purifying yourself through heat, trial by fire. Uh, you know, here comes one who will baptize you in fire. I can only baptize you in water. You know, the idea that you need suffering, you need heat. And think about it. When you start to meditate, when you start to go very deep in your spiritual practice, your concepts of who you are start to change. You turn out to no longer be the person you once thought you were. That's really uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable to start losing thought patterns that might have been, you know, uncomfortable, but at least they were familiar, you know? And if you thought that was uncomfortable, there is even more discomfort in breaking out of the prison. There's a lot of instances where people go right back to prison because at least they know that. You know, they're scared of that freedom. It happens all the time. When you start to practice, your ideas of yourself change, but also your ideas of the universe change. So 
who you think you are and what this world, you know, you took it to be one thing. Now you're realizing it's something else. That's suffering. And in that, you're going to lose friends. You're going to lose lovers. Um, you're going to have perhaps hardcore kundalini awakenings that will create sickness and disturbance in the body. All that can happen. That's Kali coming to teach you. And if you can deify that, if you can see that suffering as functional, then um, you can worship that aspect of your mother, the scolding mother. She scolds you because she loves you. And ultimately, the head that she's holding is you. It's your ego, your severed ego. Now, so you have Kali, right? On the other end of the spectrum, you have a spring goddess in intensely benevolent and her name is Lakshmi often seen as the wife of Vishnu she is the wealth goddess the abundance goddess but a lot of people a lot of Indians pray to her to make money you know they she's often depicted in a beautiful sari her hair is done up nicely she's smiling very beautiful Indian woman and she's pouring like a pot of leprechaun gold down into your lap you know she usually has a hand turned down pouring gold She's showering you in abundance. But a lot of people mistake that to be physical abundance. In truth, it's a kind of natural abundance. It's the same as the Empress card in uh, the Rider Waite Tarot, or in the system of symbols known as the Tarot. It is um, abundance, sensuality, attractiveness. She is often seen as the embodiment of charm and grace. So I, I just saw um, a beautiful... Om Krim Maha Kali Kaeya Namaha is the mantra for Kali. And if you want, there are some very secret Kali mantras. They're very powerful and they're often not given out because a lot, a lot of people are ready for that kind of spirituality. You know, not a lot of people are ready to learn the lessons of Kali, which are very abrupt and fierce, but effective. People want to learn from Lakshmi, you know. She's a little more charming and graceful. Um, and her mantra is Om Shrim. Mahalakshmiye Namaha. And of course, at the end of the class, I can, you know, stick around and we'll talk about the mantras. This is how you invoke them into your life, as we discussed last week. So here you have your Kali and you have her direct opposite, which is Lakshmi. There's another version of Lakshmi. Her name is Saraswati. Well, Lakshmi is seen as the wife of Vishnu. And you can think of Lakshmi as the kind of Indian uh, Aphrodite. You know, she's all beauty and grace and charm and sensuality and attractiveness and abundance. You can think of Saraswati, wife of Brahma, as the Hindu. Um, I use the word Hindu very sparingly, by the way, as we discovered last week. It's a colonial word that conglomerates together too many different traditions. So forgive me. I use it with a little bit of a disclaimer. But the Hindu version of Athena is Saraswati. So where Athena is the patron of culture civilization and learning, that is the function fulfilled by Saraswati. Her name Saraswati is a river. So there's a mythical river in India. It's not just the Gang Ganges, Ganga and the Yamuna. There's another river called the Saraswati River. And the Indian civilization was said to have been birthed at the meeting place of these three rivers, somewhere where modern Pakistan is now. You know, it's funny. People often say, oh, this is Indian spirituality. But all those cities are currently in Pakistan. Another reason why the word India or Indian is problematic. You know, we say Sanatana Dharma, eternal um, religion. It's for all cultures and exists in different forms. 
So here we are, we've got Saraswati, whose name literally means she of the pooling waters or the pooling speech. Where Lakshmi is depicted bestowing wealth, Saraswati is depicted bestowing knowledge, culture, and music. So her, um, Lakshmi often has a swan. Actually, I have Lakshmi over here. She's very small, little bronze Lakshmi. It's a little too bright to see her. But she's often holding lotuses. Water comes out of the lotuses and she's got um, a swan. Um, sometimes elephants. You see Lakshmi with elephants a lot. Um, but swans are often associated also to Saraswati. She is a water deity. She often holds a book, you know, a traditional Indian book, and she holds a veena because she plays music. So she's cultured and uh, thoughtful. Now, if you took those two, which is kind of like the polished version, Parvati also, we talked about her last week. We can add her there. Parvati, Saraswati, and Lakshmi. So these are kind of the spring goddesses, very beautiful and charming. On the opposite side, you have Bhairavi and Kali, fierce winter goddesses. You bring them together and you have Durga. So this is why Durga is my uh, deity of choice outside of Shiva. I choose to worship Parvati in her Durgic form because it captures that tantric idea of activity, motion, um, force, and power that... Um, her weapons signify and her arms out wide signify, but it still captures the benevolent charm, beauty, and grace in femininity, in action. So all beauty, all power, all majesty is the female. The practice of Hatha Yoga is tantric practice. It uses the body. It uses the mind. In other words, it uses nature in order to go beyond nature. That's why the female deities are regarded very highly in Tantra, because they are teachers. Before Tantra, they were denigrated as distractions. Nature was the enemy. The word for nature was Maya. Another name for her was Mohini, the deluder, the deceiver, the trickster. In her saris were many colors that would delude the would-be spiritual aspirant, keeping you ensnared in a perpetuating chase of fear and desire, suffering and joy. She threw a net over you and trapped you in time and duality. She gave you a body just so that it would rot. She let you taste sweetness so you could understand the depths of bitterness. She teased you with joy so she could kick your ass with sorrow. You know, she was seen as this fearful thing. And that's only because how little we knew of her. When we stopped as an Indian spiritual culture, we stopped seeing her as this enemy to be subjugated. Uh, a sin that has happened all throughout Babylon and the Western world, killing Tiamat, you know, smiting the serpent. When we stopped demonizing the body and the mind and nature, suddenly we realize it is only through her, through her teaching, that we can understand anything at all. So in Tantra, we rise by that which previously tripped us. That's the motto of Tantra. So where before nature beat our, beat our ass, you know, it was punishing, now... We learned from that. She was only smacking us because she wanted us to get our shit in order, you know? She was a stern mom when she needed to be. But when you start to practice spirituality, she doesn't need to scold you anymore. She becomes loving. So in closing, I will say this. 
Sri Ramakrishna, the greatest sage of India. I'll just say, we've had many, but Sri Ramakrishna has to be, I think, India's greatest sage. And part of the reason why is because as a modern sage, Sri Ramakrishna was a Muslim. He was a Christian. He was a Hindu Tantrika. He was a non-dual Advaita Vedantin. He practiced every path so he could show people once and for all that all paths led to the same place. Truth is one, the ways there are many. Ramakrishna's deity was Kali. He was a worshiper of Kali. He was mad in love with Kali. And he often saw her as not a fierce doomsday figure, but as a beautiful woman who used to giggle and dance and run up the stairs of his temple. He used to have meals with her. And when his wife was sick, Sarada Devi was sick, she woke up one day and saw a radiant Kali sitting next to her, washing her feet, nursing her hands. You know, that to me is the ultimate lesson of Tantra. Take this fearsome being like Kali, learn from her, see the divinity and functionality in suffering, in darkness, in heavy metal might, you know, the dark aspects of spirituality. And then through that, you see her beauty in every woman and in every man, you will see reflected back to you some aspect of the deity. Maybe now you look around the room and you see Saraswati or you see Lakshmi, or you see Durga or Kali. Everywhere you look, you see her. This world is only woman. This world is only feminine. To pretend otherwise is spiritual ignorance. We are all women. This is important bhakti yoga. There's only one man, we're all women. So let's end here today. I must tell you this final story though. It, it just came to mind and I have to say it. Um, and we'll close here. The story is this. There was a very famous Indian um, devotee of Shiva, a lover of Shiva. She was a beautiful sage. And she would sit and meditate. And she was so in love with Shiva that she renounced her world, right? So she got rid of all her... Sorry, I'm, I'm jumping ahead in the story. But she renounced the world and she would go and meditate. One day, a Maharaja saw her and fell in love. She was so beautiful. So he demanded that she be brought to the palace and asked her to marry him. And she said, I can't marry you, dude. I'm betrothed to Shiva. I already have a husband. It's Shiva. Sorry. And he's like, no, 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 no. You will marry me and uh, give me 10 years. I will win your affections. So, you know, like Ravana, he kept her, his Sita in the palace and gave her fine ornaments and elephants and a palace and everything. And she didn't care. She just wanted to sit for Shiva. She never came to his bed. Finally, after 10 years, he had enough. He was like, look at everything I've given you. I've been the perfect suitor. I've been nothing but kind. I never forced myself on you. Why won't you come to my bed? And she said, I told you. 10 years ago, bro, I'm already married. I've consummated my relationship to Shiva. I will not be unchaste to him. And he goes, well, you know what? Then you can leave here. And she says, fine. And she turns around to leave and he goes, wait, the clothes you're wearing, those are my clothes. I'm the Maharaja, I gave them to you. And she goes, fine, I don't need them. She takes them all off and she walks and she's naked from that point on. She refused to wear clothes. Now, this of course freaks out all the Brahmin males. You know, they're like, how can you be so inappropriate? You're here at the ashram meditating. You're attracting spiritual people. Surely you can't be naked before them as a beautiful woman amongst spiritual men. And she turns to them. She sneers and she says, 
uh, in a group of learned men, India's greatest sages all around her, chastising her for being naked. She looks at all of them and sneers and says, why should I be ashamed? I see no men here. And let us close there, my friends, perhaps bringing the hands over the heart. And we'll close with the final Om. You're welcome to join me. The silence, there are four syllables, Ah, U, Um. The silence after the Om is the masculine, is the stillness. They are inseparable. So let's chant now, inhaling into Om. Thank you for another great episode of For the Love of Yoga. To get in on the discussion, you can find me at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish for more episodes and more content. Stick around for some question and answers throughout the end of the rest of this podcast. And I hope to see you again in the next episode. Peace, peace, peace. Oh, thank you all for a beautiful class. Good to see you, G. Dropped in there. And, great class, uh, great stories. <laughs> Amazing stories. Thank you, Madeline. As always, I'm going to stick around and um, if you have any anything you want to share, you know, please feel free. It's our satsang time. Hi. Okay. So I wanted to ask more about what I what we talked about earlier with like the like seeing because sometimes if I really focus and if I really get into a centered space, like I'll put out, like, I want to see a spirit animal or something. And I'll see, like, this imprint of a turtle swimming in front of me or something. But it takes me, like, 40 minutes just, like, really focusing to see just an imprint, not even, like, an actual real-life turtle. You know what I mean? And so you were talking about how that is the physical still. That's, like, the feminine still. And... I don't know. I was just kind of confused a little bit. So could you talk more about that? Sure. It's a great question, Eden, because um, there is a tendency for us to divide the world to the seen and the unseen. The unseen being what we would call the astral or the etheric or the spiritual. And the seen we call the physical, the tangible and the material. You know, so that's kind of like a modern spiritual kind of categorizing of the world and we tend to think of thoughts emotions interior experiences as the unseen you know um here's the thing in indian spirituality all of that is the scene all thoughts all emotions all beings in any realms and granted there are subtler and subtler realms so there are physical sea turtles but then there are the subtle astral turtles that you see in your mind's eye or in the what we call astral plane. You know, those are things. They're just subtler things. So you can think of like maybe a table is a thing. Electricity is less of a thing than a table, but it's still something. You know, and there are subtler things like electricity. Then electricity, sorry, like thoughts or mental images, but they're still things.
You know, basically anything that can become the object of your awareness is a thing. By definition. You know? This God or this awareness is the subject. It cannot be objectified because once you make the subject the object, you necessitate the existence of another subject. Does that make sense? I'll do something with you. And this, this might be helpful for all, but um, look at an object in front of you. Let's say like taking this phone, you know, so I've got this object. This is the object and my eyes are looking at the object. So my eyes are the subject. Yes. Subject, object. Eyes are looking at phone. Cool. So far, so good. Here's what I know. The subject and the object are and must be different things. There are two. There's the subject and there's the object. There is a third thing, yes, and it's called seeing. So the act of my eyes seeing the object is the third thing, but let's ignore that for now. There's the eyes and there's the object. I know that the subject and the object are different things, but I also know that I am the subject, not the object. Right? So I know I'm not the phone. I am the eyes looking at the phone. So far, so good. If you accept these two premises, you will have to concede that you are not your mind and your body because here's what happens. If my eyes are looking at the phone and I agree that the eyes are the subject and the phone is the object, my mind can look at my eyes which are looking at the phone. So my mind is now the subject, my eyes have become the object. Do you see? Yeah, but what about like when your mind becomes object? Yes, now you're getting there. That's exactly it. So I know because my, my I'm not the phone, right? The phone is the object. My eyes are the subject, but I'm not even the eyes. The eyes are the object. My mind is the subject. That means I'm not my body, right? But if my mind becomes the object, I'm not even my mind. I am the subject looking at the mind, at the body, at the phone. Therefore, all the, the things in the world that my eyes look at, all the bodily stuff that goes on in me that my mind looks at, and all the thoughts and astral psychic experiences that my mind has, all of that is the scheme. They're all objects. But you, that is God, is the subject, the supreme subject. Okay, so I've been thinking like about, I guess, this a lot recently like who am I beneath all of this and just last night I was going through this box of old books that I have that I used to read as a kid and you know I was reading through them and I was looking at them and I realized like these books are literally who I identify myself to be but like not exactly as a book you know like I think pretty much all of my books are like animal based and I'm like the biggest animal lover in the world. And, you know, I'm vegan and I dedicate like a lot of myself to that, to like ahimsa non-harm. And, you know, and a lot of them are like magical books too, with like unicorns and stuff like that, or like fairies and, you know, and I, I feel like all of that kind of embodies who I am. But then I like, I'm asking myself, am I that because I read those books or am I already that in a way, like that energy in a way? And that's why those books were given to me as a kid, you know, like, who am I, you know what I mean? Like, and it's just, 
I don't know. It's confusing because with the whole, you know, your mind being the subject is like that part of the subject or is that like where am I an individual in the whole or am I the whole and everyone is the whole and like who, like, is there, is there a who am I in the beginning? Like, you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Beautiful. (laughs) That's all you need. Who am I is the only question you have to ask in Indian spiritual. In, in the Yoga Sutra, the third line is Tada Drashtus Farupe Vastanam. Yoga's promise is if you practice yoga, you will abide in your true nature. Isn't it beautiful, Eden, that you weren't the only one asking who am I? Because in 500-ish AD in uh, BCE India, people were like, who the fuck am I? I thought I was a farmer, but then I realized I'm so much more than that. Why do I farm? Is it because my dad made me farm? Or did I just choose to reincarnate with a dad who farmed because my soul was intrinsically a farmer soul? You know, and they're having these same conversations. And it's so complex, Eden. There's like you, the physical being. There's you, the energetic being, like you're talking about, you know, your energy. There's you, the mental causal being, you know. There's you, the higher mind being, the buddhi mind being. There's you, the bliss body. And when you take out all the Russian dolls and the matryoshka, what do you find but empty space in the middle? That's the scary thing, right? Because you want to be something. You know that you are. Your, your sense of I am cannot be disputed. You just don't know how to finish the sentence. I am blank. What to put there? <laughs> That's the problem. So in fact, your quest, Eden, is the entirety of Indian spirituality. How do you fill that blank? I am what? You know? I also, I wanted to add something that kind of goes along with that because um, it goes with exactly what we were talking about. Like Shiva being the, the like void, like the stillness, right? It's something that we can't, really comprehend so we spend so much time questioning it because that is what we are but right now we're experiencing the doing so we we can't like it's like a never-ending question like you know what I mean like everybody has like that type of question so I definitely know what you mean I I find like what's the word like um I don't know the word for it, like calmness. Like I find like, um, it starts with an S. Solace. Yeah, it's that. In like knowing that like, um, I'm reading this book right now called The Three Questions. And it he asks like, what is love? Like, who am I? And what is real? And he said, like for each of those, it's like, who am I? You are what you are not. Like if you're talking about like, the physical, like, like, I don't know who I am, like identity thing, like, you know who you don't want to be, for example, like, you don't want to be a meat eater. So you're not, that's, like, true to you and your soul's purpose. So like, you're doing exactly everything you're supposed to be, you know what I mean? I just wanted to add that because the whole Shiva thing, like, because I've been having that question lately as well. So beautiful, Christina. That makes me think, too, like, with Shiva being, like, the space of nothing, 
and you know you can find that in like all religious or spiritual teachings like the the stillness and if that's like the most inner layer then what is nothing or is not like you know what i mean <laughs> like like is like is there anything that's real <laughs> you know what i mean you got it, Eden. You nailed it on the head. Austin says the Tao, it's beautiful because the opening line of the Tao Te Ching is the Tao that can be spoken of is not Tao. Isn't that beautiful? That nothing, it's beyond any conception. How do you even speak of nothing? So the interesting thing though, Eden, is the word for it is shunyata. Or what Christina was saying, it's very beautiful, I should type it in here. The process is called neti neti. It's an ancient Indian technique and it's, I will argue to you, the heart of Indian spirituality. Neti Neti stands for not this, not that. You know, so Christina's right. You can never define yourself in positive terms. You can never say what you are, but you can't say what you are not. And in the beginning, that's easy. Like Christina said, you could say I'm not a meter or you could say I am a guitar player. And like, no, I'm not just a guitar player. You know, um, there's more to me than that. And I try, I think that at least. <laughs> and then you do it, you know, you start to peel off layers. And you go, I'm not that. I'm not this. I'm not that. You know, the exercise that we just did just now with the phone, that is neti neti, like purest form, which is I'm not this. I'm not that. I'm not the body. I'm not the mind. So it turns out maybe you are that emptiness, but it's not empty. The Buddha said it was empty. You know, the reason Buddhism and Hinduism split, you know how Carl Jung and Freud had a fight? Like Freud said, the subconscious mind is just a, a repository for complexes. And Jung was like, no, it's so much more than that. There's gods and goddesses and archetypes. And they broke up. It's almost like Hinduism and Buddhism. Because Hinduism says there is a you. It's called an Atman or a soul or a, a spirit or a witness. Buddhism says, I don't see it. You know? Buddhism is defined by something known as anatma theory. That's what splits us. A Buddhist says, um, you cannot prove atman. You cannot prove soul. You cannot prove that at the center of each individual, there is a discrete being. And the Buddha said, show me. You know, he would debate and he would say, show me. I don't see it. And he said, what I see is emptiness. At the center of all of it is nothing is pure space. So now think of the way the Buddhist meditation orients itself, like Zazen or Vipassana. It's meditation on nothingness. The Buddhist doesn't often focus on something. They use the breath and sensations of the body to anchor the mind in the now, just so they can watch thoughts appear, disappear. They want to appreciate the nothingness out of which everything arises and into which everything eventually returns. So the study of emptiness or the study of nothingness is the heart of the Buddhist spiritual quest. The yogi, on the other hand, uses a dharana, a focus. The yogi meditates on a thing, an object. And in the Yoga Sutra, it says by meditating on an object, you come to understand all the secrets of that object. And by merging with that object, you become everything only to realize you are not any of that stuff. You know, are you a thing if you are everything? Does that make sense? It's like, can you be one thing if you are in fact all the things? And if you are all the things, 
Are you none of the things? You know, that's the question. Yeah, I feel like that's been making me just feel really scared. Is like the the whole Buddhist way. I guess I've been I guess I've been absorbing like that kind of stuff recently because the idea that we are nothing I think just scares me because it's like well if we're nothing then what what is everything that I'm seeing like what is real you know it kind of makes you feel a little bit crazy and also like why would I want to go down that path if it's like leading literally nowhere and there's no point I know that's probably not how they see it but just the way that I was like interpreting it but you know something you said earlier was like there's the nothing isn't nothing it's something like that makes so much sense and I feel like that's what I've been feeling inside but I've been hearing like just just the words that we have I don't know if it's just English or if it's like all language or whatever but just like the word nothing is such a negative word at least in I feel like in my language and that's just been scaring me <laughs> honestly <laughs> So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to explain that because it feels like something that I already knew in a way, you know what I mean? I was just, I just didn't have the connection to it, you know? This is a great discussion. This is really cool. Can we hear from someone else? Does anybody have any ideas with regards to this dilemma, Nick? I feel like it kind of, this is just me drawing a connection to what you were talking before about dualities, about how it's kind of boring for there to be one thing, but for there to be nothing and everything merged in together is that that is, that is kind of the beauty of it all. It's that it is everything and it's nothing. We are everything and we're nothing in the same sense. Good, good. Very nice. Very nice. I think it's also important to like, um, for me, like remember that like I've been conditioned a to think a certain way and like act a certain way. And like, it was literally what you had just said, Eden, like about like, like the word nothing because that scares the hell out of me too like like if we're nothing like we learn nothing as like unimportant right like that's how I associate it but like I think that's why I use the word void more because yeah it's the same thing but like it still gives you like a like because even at an atomic level like we are empty space and it's like what you said Nish about like why people stare at the stars and like feel peace or like why they stare at the ocean like it's never ending like you feel peaceful some people get scared of it because it's so like um I guess counter countering their conditioning and I think that's why it's important like sometimes I, I tell myself like I don't have to understand it yet like there's so much pressure to like understand that like where everything like there's this uncomprehensible force that we are working to comprehend like that that's I don't think that's the point at all because then it's like like everybody says spirituality doesn't have a goal but like we always have like one in our mind like whether we like to admit it or not like there's always one but like at the core of it like we're just having an experience that like whatever higher selves beings they it whatever knows it like we're not conscious of it kind of like what you said with the psychic thing like the unseen can't be seen until it's like 
until like whatever whatever you said like we can't comprehend it because we're just like not there yet and i feel like you're not gonna we're not gonna be there until we die that's why like like even death has been demonized you know what i mean so it's like it's important to realize that like like it's all like chilling like we're all gonna be fine even when we die like that's i I just try to like remind myself with that because of there's a lot of stuff going around in spiritualities that's scary but like it shouldn't be scary sometimes maybe but Mm -hmm. there's a lot of things that go around that sound scary but they shouldn't be yeah you said christina the choose choose choice of word void as opposed to nothing just because there's cultural baggage around one of those things um i should read austin's comment over here in case he's um muted but he says can't you argue that brahman is just enacting itself in different givens giving the appearance of atman when only brahman is good question and he goes on to say i think watts has an argument in that vein the problem with understanding dao slash non-dualism comes from the fallacy of labeling things that we have come to accept in the west yes for instance you will never truly encounter a true pine tree but you will find the latest evolution in genetic line we have called pine Yes, yes. True pine tree. Sounds kind of platonic. And fluke, 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 of course you can ask a difficult question. Though I sense that Casey has something that she wanted to contribute. Casey. Me? Yeah, yeah. I saw you on mute. Oh, I, it's an interesting conversation, Eden, because it's funny. We get out of this. I feel like with spiritual growth, we get out of this like idea of like okay we're following the routine who we're supposed to be what they're telling us supposed to be and we're like okay we get free from that and then you get wrapped up in this whole spiritual well who am I really like who am I really then and then it gets overwhelming because I think even in the spiritual world we want this like answer and we want this end and even though we got out of one box it's like we're putting ourselves in another box like how can I fit my true self in this box? And we just keep going and going and going. And there's this sense of waiting and this sense of incompleteness. And it is exhausting. <laughs> it's scary. And I think all of us have felt that at one point or another. But I just, I don't know. I just feel like I manifested this way for a reason. I have the interest I have for a reason. And I love last week or maybe the week before, Nishu, talking about play. And I, I just try every day because I can get so in my head. And so like, what's the point and who am I? And, and there's all now we're talking about all these different realms and all these. Di- and it's it's overwhelming. But today, who am I in this moment? What is sparking interest right now? What is bringing joy right now? And can I just like lean into that? Because in this moment, like I have a lesson, I have a self. How can I play with that? And that concept of play has been like life-changing for me. I was like, how can I find play in who I am right now instead of getting wrapped up in like all this other stuff? Because at the end of the day, if we're everything, we're nothing. Like, what the fuck are we doing? Like, it's just like, have fun with it. I don't know. Because the other side, I'm like, then I could just sit and just think and think and try to figure out. And I just feel like I'm digging a deeper and deeper hole, you know? I don't know. But I do get eaten. I get it. Like when you were talking, I didn't like, I was hearing what you were saying, but I was like feeling what you were feeling too. And it, it it's overwhelming and exhausting. I, I get it for sure. 
Sorry, that was all. I was just thinking. I was just responding to what was Eden was talking about because I was like, girl, I get it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've actually been told like for years by tarot cards or like psychics or whatever, like that word play has been so prominent in something that people or like the cards or whatever have been telling me that I need. And it's like, well, okay, um, you want me to go like jump over something? But that makes a lot more sense. I don't know why. It's just like, I guess because the, the place that I live, the society that I live in is like, you know, so play doesn't matter. You know, do this, do that, do this, do that. You know what I'm saying? And that makes so much more sense, though, because, like, I am such an overthinker. Like, how you were saying you could just sit for hours. Like, I've done that. Like, I've sat for hours and just thought, like, what is the point? if this is that, then this is that. And like, you know, it just spirals and spirals. But if you just like what you said, take this moment exactly at this moment and just see what you can do and see what is going on and just what wants to flow right now. I think that definition of play is so much more, you know, is is what it means to play more, I think, rather than just like, you know, have a toy Barbie or something from when you were a kid, you know what I mean? That makes a lot more sense the way that you put it. But I suggest that if I may, um, you intensify your sadhana or your spiritual practice. So there is the doing aspect of spirituality. It's way more important. Um, If there's ever a feeling of like, okay, I'm overwhelmed by all the theory and all the philosophy and these questions, I can't seem to answer it but I need an answer now. What's going on is that the mind has a tendency where it needs to orient itself by conceptualizing, labeling, understanding, controlling. So the mind, it uses knowledge as a way to control the world. Basically what you're experiencing right now is the inability to be uh, out of control or not knowing or in confusion. It's an uncomfortable state, right? To be in confusion, to not know, to be wanting or grasping for answers. That's not you. It's just a natural kind of like thing that the prefrontal cortex does. The solution to that cannot be to go out and know what cannot be known because that's just a frustrating dog chasing its own tail. So every time you're like sitting there and you find yourself being pulled into that thought whirlpool, go and practice asana. Go and practice pranayam. Uh, do your kundalini kriyas. Even reading a book from a spiritual master, it can be the Quran, the Bible, it can be Sri Ramakrishna's gospel. That, it's not about reading, you know, it's not about what you're thinking. It's the fact that the book was made in spirit. It was written by someone who was vibrating on a high level. That will transfer. All of that stuff takes you out of your mind, into your practice, and depowers, or I should say, devitalizes the minds like gnawing. So you will no longer feel as the mind. Right now, you're, you're interacting with the world as a mind. You know, and this is what a mind does. It looks for answers. It looks for solutions. It looks for, quote unquote, a point to things. Like, what's the point of spirituality? The mind's always like, what am I doing this for? You know, Why are you making me do this? You know, that's just the mind's thing. So when we say spirituality is absolutely pointless, That's not entirely true, but it is entirely true because to the point of the view of the mind, we are settling into Shiva Lila, the play of life. The only thing keeping us from the play is that we think the mind is all there is. 
Yoga is about going beyond the mind, which of course for now will involve discomfort as you no longer satisfy the mind's tendencies. Ultimately, you will achieve what Christina was saying is the ultimate goal, which is chillaxing, chilling. And Nick pointed out, uh, pointed out earlier, there's a reason this universe came into being. You brought it into being to explore yourself. You know, and you're just exploring yourself and now you're trying to do it with the mind and, you know, you're realizing it's not quite working. So in an effort to deepen your self-exploration, you've come here to spirituality. As Casey pointed out, you've brought some of the tendencies with you. So where before you oriented your personality around, I don't know, Ferraris, now you do it around special mala beads and whose guru you are learning under and you try to create a new identity, you know, the Instagram becomes spiritual and that's all fine and good. But after a while, you realize like, I'm just doing the same shit and you realize the only, like, the only tendency you have is that you're a thinker. You're like in the mind. That's it. And once you get out of that, it's home free you know what you just said was like so precisely like my thoughts of the past month that it's like it was just blowing my mind because like no just exactly that and so lately for the past few weeks I've just like with the word nothing I've just been like it you as it used to be scary now it's turned into something like freeing almost because it's like, okay, I just don't know. And that's fine. Mm. Like every day I just approach things. Like, I don't know. I don't know my roommates. I don't even know like myself really. Like, I mean, and that's like perfect. (laughs) Like, you know, (laughs) why would we jam the infinite profundity, beauty, and mystery of Anisha into narrow confines of labels, categories, preconceptions. I love that I know nothing about you, Anisha, and I never will. And that allows every moment with you to be infinitely rewarding because I'm always being confronted by some new facet in the infinity of your being. Awesome. Great, great conversation. That's a beautiful way to look at people, I think. (laughs) And thank you all for everything that you have inputted into this conversation. I think it's really helped me change my viewpoint. Thank you, Eden, for asking the biggest questions. You're always here, like, asking the hardest, you know, like, hard talks with Eden Granger. Like, let's go. Mara, did you have any thoughts? And Casey Wood, good to see you here finally. Casey makes very beautiful videos on TikTok and happy to have you in our family. Mara's good. Um, anything to add there? Because Lyric, do you have anything to add? I just uh, wanted to... Oh, sorry. You can go first. I just wanted to add one thing because I noticed um, when we were talking about the psychic stuff, I, I'm i not going to sit here and say, like, I'm a, like, I mean, but, like, the other day I was with two of my friends and I guess they don't really have a practice going and stuff. And I mean, I don't really mind like that. That doesn't matter to me, but I was in the car and I was looking at a moon, the moon. And I noticed like an aura around the moon, like a rainbow. 
And I was like staring at it because I've been noticing it. And I was like, guys, do you see that? And they were like, they were like, what are you talking about? I was like, like, it's like red and blue and like green around the moon. Like, do you see it? And they were like, no, I was like, look harder. Like, how do you not see it? Like, it's right there. Like, look through my window. Like, I was like, cause we were in the car and I was like, look through my window. Like, maybe it's a window. They were like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, okay. So like, I think that's a perfect example of like, like, um, like it being like subjective because one of them said like, no, but I know what you're talking about. I've seen that before. So it's kind of like, I just noticed that like, it is really subjective to like what you practice because had I like, I think presence has a lot to do with it because like, had I not been present enough to see it, I wouldn't have. And like, I, I just wanted to say that because I did notice that when we were talking about it and you said like, like, um, I forgot what it was you said, but it just clicked with that, that thing. So I just wanted to add that, but this was a great discussion, like wonderful. I loved it. Incredibly deep. Thank you, Christina. Yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for this discussion because I got to have like my dad and my brother come in. So that's been pretty fun. Uh, I feel like the like and he was thinking it too, like the it's like the deeper we go into this stuff, it's like the more confusing and complicated it feels because it's like we are everything but we're nothing. And it's like at that point it's like it's hard for me to make sense of it, but I'm like, I'm hearing exactly what you're saying, and it it's making sense, or it's almost like I'm like becoming okay with it not making sense right now based on what everyone else is saying so yes good point lyric here's what's important though in our discussions the words do not matter at all you know the the most important thing when we sit together is the energetic transference we're looking at each other's faces and we're all spiritual practitioners so like what is it something sharpens sharp something there's like a line in the bible but uh the point is that we're like cars pulling up next to each other and giving each other juice. So if we just sat here together and talked about whatever, there would still be an energetic transference that will boost each of our practices. So when we get to that particularly thorny part of philosophy, that's like, ugh, existential metaphysics, like what is and what is a positive non-being, no thing equals, you know, like what's all that stuff? The Buddha refused to have that discussion. You know, he refused because he just said, you're just going to get in your head about it and you're going to create concepts about it. And the Buddha was really afraid of people putting him into a box, a category, a concept, which is exactly what has happened. You know, Um, you might want to check out the 16 noble silences of the Buddha. There were 16 topics the Buddha refused to talk about. People would come and ask him like, Oh, so what happens when we die? Or are there gods? Or is there a soul? He was nobly silent. And one day he turned and he said, look, if you came into the hospital, I told you the story before, but if you came into the hospital and, you know, there was someone shot you with an arrow and the doctor was about to take out the arrow, would you say, wait, 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 wait. I have a few questions. What angle did the arrow pierce my skin? What poison did the poisoner use? How much time do I have left to die? How will I die? Describe the suffering to me. You won't, you won't ask any questions. So the Buddha says, enlightenment isn't the end, it's the beginning. What is enlightenment? It's nirvana. It's blowing out. And what are you blowing out? 
the mind. Here's the curious thing. In Indian spirituality, you don't have a mind and a body. You just have a mind. The body is an idea in the mind. Okay. Yeah. I was just stunning. You said it made me think of this. Like I find this balance sometimes hard between like conceptualizing things and trying to understand things while just like while I'm in my free time when I'm alone, like trying to think through stuff. And I'm like, well, maybe I'm overthinking. Like I'm not in the present moment as much. Yes. So that, that's why the Buddha would say that then, because you want people to be in the present moment. And that's like, what's important, I guess. Right. Exactly. Precisely. Being here and now and every thought is one degree of separation from the here and now. But here's the interesting thing. You cannot get rid of all your thoughts immediately. You can't just realize, oh, yeah, fuck thoughts, and then put them all aside and be here and now. Like, that's not going to happen. Like, the thoughts, you can't get rid of them now. So what should you do? You have a problem. You have all these thoughts. Now, the solution is this. You have five kinds of thoughts. One of them is right knowledge, pramana. The other one is wrong knowledge, viparyaya. The next one is vikalpa, verbal delusion, which is like all the fanciful thinking and nonsense. The third one is smriti or memory. And the final one is nidra, meaning sleep. Yes, even sleep is a thought. You know, so when you're sleeping and you wake up and you're like, I had a deep sleep, that's a thought too. So you have five kinds of thoughts. In the Yoga Sutra, it says, vritti panchataya klista klistaha. Five types of mental movements. Some are painful, some are not. You know? So you can guess which ones are painful. Obviously, wrong knowledge, delusion, and probably memory, right? Because if you have trauma in the past, that's memory being painful. But even if you have good memories, nostalgia makes right now suck if it doesn't measure up to then. So most of them are kind of painful. Sleep and right knowledge aren't. So what do you do? Here's the solution. You can't throw out all the thoughts, but you can cultivate more of the thoughts that are less painful than the other ones. So you can cultivate more um, right knowledge. Now, even those must go in the end. So the metaphor that Sri Ramakrishna uses is you have a thorn in your skin. The thorn is the thorn of wrong knowledge. It's all the fake identities that you've put on, all the false notions of the world. How do you get rid of it? You can't just get rid of it like that. You need to take another thorn. And that's the thorn of right knowledge. You use that thorn to take out the first splinter. Now you don't have the wrong knowledge. But what do you do with the right knowledge thorn? You throw that away. It's done its job. You know, so it's all these thoughts, all these mind stuff. It's, it's a means to an end. And it's a self-destruct button. So all the thoughts that we're imparting today in tantric, especially tantric spirituality, is to help you get rid of all the thoughts eventually. Yes. That makes a lot of sense. And I remember it was what you were discussing like two weeks ago. So yeah, <laughs> thank you again for that reminder. You're welcome, Lyric. Thank you for that question. I got a really um, interesting um, series of comments here from Fluke Uk, Fluke Uke. And Fluke Uke was saying, I joined earlier when you were talking about duality and gender, and I've been conflicted, also questioning who am I? And would it be adharmic to transition, knowing it's rooted in trauma? I'm not so sure. I'm not sure. I want to be transgender, but also want to pursue maybe being a monk or nun. Interesting. That's a really, really interesting question. Any thoughts? If you're open to having the discussion. I don't know if that was a... It's not a private message, but... You know. Um, I... Uh, I just wanted to add that, like, the I see you use the word a dharmic, and um, 
I don't think, just in my personal opinion, anything you do in your life is a dharmic or countering your purpose and what you're supposed to do. So, um, I would, like you said here, would it be a dharmic to transition knowing it's rooted in trauma? I think that you should, before making such a huge decision, you should confront that trauma and um, ask yourself if if this is what you need, then this is what you need. You know what I mean? But I think you should confront that trauma first and try to heal. You know, easier said than done, but try to heal and um, see it from different perspectives and then make your decision because ultimately it's your decision because you said you said, but also want to pursue maybe being a monk or nun. So I feel like, yeah, I feel like just confront that trauma and just, um, yeah, that's what I have to say about it because I know how hard it can be to like not know what the fuck we're doing. Like, it's hard. Like, we don't know, none of us know what the hell we're doing. We probably have our own dilemma that's, like that but in a different way but that's what I would say to do about it because yeah that's what I would say to do I also want to add to that was beautiful Christina but uh, I think right now in our culture like transgendered we've seen a lot of people going through like the final stages of switching their gender or their sex from one to the other you know, with, you know, hormones and drugs and, and surgeries, but I don't know why I keep coming back to this topic of play, but like, none of this is real. Like, this is such a, these sound like really big commitments they're trying to make. Like, I want to become a monk and a nun. Play with it. Like, I don't know what gender you are, which one you're expressing yourself as, but if you're male, like, we're clothes that are feminine or like play with your hair, stuff that you could easily change back and forth. Like sometimes I feel like when we go into something, it's like all or nothing. I'm either going all in or I'm not doing it at all. But you don't have to like dip your toe in the water, like play with it, have fun with it. And yeah, at the same time, like she was saying, work with your trauma, see how it plays with your trauma. If it brings stuff up, it connects you to something, but just have fun. These rules don't matter. It's just like little things like, oh, I want to cut my hair, cut your hair, it grows back diet we're we're the thing you know like it's just fun who cares and if they care whatever (laughs) i don't know if that helps i'm sorry (laughs) oh sister that was that was on point i'm so happy i have these recordings you know i released them as podcasts eventually but like that bit was just spot on if you want to cut your hair cut your hair play with it you don't have to be all or nothing and that's true. It's true. Sometimes you got to be all or nothing because that's part of your play. And sometimes you don't. <laughs> Take care, Austin. Thank you for your questions and your input. But yeah, no, that's such a beautiful point. The Shiva Leela idea is really good. Good night, Eden. Thank you for your beautiful, beautiful discussion today. You've taken us all to a very deep place. Thank you. Oh, I was saying good night to him, but yeah, good night to you oh, guys too. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I thought you <laughs> I hope that helped, Fluke. um, But if you're thinking about a dharmic, like there is no dharmic code 
um, that will forbid you. And if you're worried that you won't be able to join an order of monks or nuns, I can guarantee you this. The Vedanta ashram or the monks of the Vedantic order, which is the Ramakrishna mission, will not turn people away for any reason. Neither will many Buddhist monasteries. So if you're worried that that option will be closed to you, um, I really doubt it. I'm sure there are some monasteries in many places of the world that might have problems. But like Casey said, if they can't get with it, like fuck them, you'll find another one that does. Also renunciation, like the path of the monk or the nun, sannyasin, you know, it's not exclusive to joining an order. So you can still be a monk or be a nun without having to join a formal social order. So you don't have to have that be part of your consideration. And most importantly, as Christina said, Maybe it's important that you explore in this way to work out those traumas, or maybe it isn't. Ultimately, only you know. But never forget Casey's admonition not to take life too seriously. Nothing's a big deal. And the best part of it is when you're hopefully 126 and you're lying on the deathbed and the body's fading away and the mind is fading away and you're looking back on all of this, hopefully you realize that all the things we thought were a big deal might have felt like it at the time. But at the end of it all, might not have been. And maybe we can't see that now. Maybe someone coming up to you and saying, it's not that big of a deal won't help because for you it is. Right now it is. And if it is, let it be. It's fine that it is. And I love Casey's. It's all just fine. Even if you can't appreciate that it's all just fine, even that's fine too. <laughs> be okay with not being okay. The Zen proverb. If anything though, um, fluke, ook, my... Uh, Suggestion is always the same. Practice, practice, practice. You know, whatever it is in your life that is bothering you, sounds kind of escapist, go to your spiritual practice. You know, go to your mat, do your asana, do your tai chi, do your qigong. Um, purify yourself with diet, with um, whatever system of practices you have. Purify, purify, purify. And slowly, these will fall away. You know? Yeah, I can attest to that, too, what you're saying. Like, just over time, like, every single little thing you do in the direction of your spirituality makes a huge ripple effect in your life. Like, whether it's, like, two minutes of meditating that morning, which is just, like, so little, but it makes a huge difference. And it makes a huge difference over the course of your entire life. Like, you know what I mean? That one day, those two minutes. And also, I had a friend who was going through something similar, like, not to that extent, but she was really questioning her gender and her identity and stuff like that and who she was. And I think a big issue with her, or not issue with her, but, like, in the way that she was thinking, which caused all of this for her was, you know, feeling pressures from others about how she should be. And just when deciding this kind of stuff, really look into why you're feeling this way. Like, what is the root cause of all of this? Is it because when growing up, your mom expected you to be something or your dad expected you to be something or, you know, maybe a priest or like a friend at school? Like, what is it? that's causing it is it an external thing or is it really something that's happening within you that you feel you need to express and either way it's absolutely fine and either way it's valid but you know 
if you're saying it's rooted in trauma, so that's why you're holding back, then listen to that part of yourself that's holding back and, you know, go and figure out why, like the why behind the trauma before you make that decision and figure out, like, if it really is you that's feeling different than who you are right now, then absolutely go forth with it if that's what you feel, you know, but like really deciding and figuring out where it comes from, I think is really what helped her. So that would probably help you too. I love this family so much. Yes, Casey. I was going to add Aiden, that was beautiful too, but I know I've only been here. Like this is my second week here, but the reason why I look forward to this or I looked forward to all week because I feel very comfortable here and very loved and very accepted. And Flukuk, I'm so sorry if I'm saying your name wrong. I love you. You are loved. So if this is something you're playing with, like, again, this is, this is not my group. I'm very new here, but I feel love here and I feel acceptance here. So you, I love you. And I'll be here every week because I look forward to this. I'm grateful that you put this together. Like so grateful. You're just such a beautiful teacher. And I have no doubt that I was pulled here for a reason, but you're loved here. Like we love you. So if you're not feeling comfortable or secure to play with this out in your community or with your family, your world, with with me, at least I can't see for everybody. You're, you're here and I, I love you and I accept you, whoever, whoever you want to be. So I don't know. I hope you feel that. You're loved. I love you. <laughs> I'll mute myself now. <laughs> no, no, don't ever do that, Casey. I love you so much. Casey's everybody's big sister. You know what's funny? It's like you've always been part of our tribe since the very beginning because wherever we were and however long it took for us to like smile at each other as we're doing now, we have been together in so many lives before and we'll continue to be. We're karmically bonded, you know that we only progress at the rate of which the rest of us are progressing. So I echo that um, this space will always be here. As long as I'm alive and able, you know, Monday night at 7 p.m. Pacific, I will put on the Zoom room. And if it's just me, and it has been, I will sit here for the whole hour and just wait. And if you come in, there's Reiki flowing always. So you can feel it. There's always Reiki flowing. And you are loved for no other reason than because you're here and you're being. Yeah, I can't wait till we can like meet, you know, one day and sit in a circle and look into each other's eyes and like, you know, be in love. Not fall in love, but because we're already in love. Just be in love. I love you. I hope y'all have a great week. Good night. Bye. It's a good note, I think, to go to bed on. Very good note. Love you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks, Nash. Oh, gee, you're in the house. Yeah. <laughs> He's in the house right now, and I'm somewhere else. I love that. I'm sitting. <laughs> Thank you. How are you? Hi. Thank you. Hi, Nash. Are you doing good? Yeah, I'm doing so good here in Torrance, G. It's beautiful out here. 